you uh, remember last week, uh, the Israelites were about three months out of Egypt, and uh, they were camped around the bottom of Mount Sinai, and uh, God himself was speaking the Ten Commandments to the people. It's quite a scene, you know, if you recall, there's lightning and thunder and earthquakes and you know, God has come down in the uh, smoke on the top of the mountain, and uh, there's a pretty big fanfare as God speaks to the people. In fact, the people are like to Moses, you know, don't let God speak to us anymore. We can't deal with it. We're all going to die if this keeps up. And so um, this morning, I'd like to just kind of pick up where we left off. And uh, you might remember that the first four commandments have to do with loving God. How do we go about really loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And then the next six commandments have to do with loving one another and uh, getting along with uh, people. And I want to remind you um, that these commandments are for the people of God. It's not for the whole world, although the more the world would embrace these, the better the world would be. But God is speaking to his people, to the Israelites, And uh, eventually, you know, we saw that uh, Israel really dropped the ball, and uh, God has said some of the same things to the church, and that the church is to be distinct and different. Holy just means separated. And so when we think about God's people being holy, it means they're to be different than the world around them. They're to be unique. Uh, They're to be God's people, and that ought to make a difference, you know, Uh, I love the phrase of this church, the motto, you know, the gospel changes everything. And uh, the gospel changes us and makes us different uh, than so many people around us. And so uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, let me just remind you, you know, God, I think he had such a great idea about what the people, what his people were going to be, his treasured possession, he calls them. And uh, here's a little bit of what he says. He says, you keep these commandments and do them. Uh, For that'll be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the other nations. I'm going to make you unique. You're going to be wiser than everybody else in the world. I'm going to make you a nation that people are going to see as so unique and so separate and so much better and so wise that people in the other nations will be attracted to me, God, through the nation of Israel, through my nation, through my people, through uh, my treasured possession. So you, you know, keep these commandments and so forth. You'll have great wisdom, great understanding in the sight of everybody else and uh, who are then going to hear all of these statutes and other people are going to say, surely this great nation is wise and, and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What other nation has a God that's so close? You can simply stop in the middle of whatever you're doing and pray and be in the presence of God. What other nation has that? You know, what other religion offers that? Every other religion is what I have to do to earn God's favor so that I can come into his presence. And even that's a fearful thing. But God has, with the gospel, uh, invited us and made a way for us. What great nation you know, is like Israel, and what great nation is there uh, that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Who has a better understanding of how to do life than us, than God's people? And so I think God's got this dream about his people, 
and how they're going to be unique among all the nations and other people are going to see his wisdom through them and they're going to be, uh, you know, drawn to him. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, here's, again, a a little bit. uh, The Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he promised you that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the other nations that he has made and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. You're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be my bride, right? Remember we talk a little bit, there's a theme that runs through all of this that we could take as kind of an a, a idea of a, a, a suitor looking for a bride. And uh, God is like, you know, I'm going to be so proud of you, and you're going to, you know, draw people uh, of the world to myself and so forth. And so our God is superior to all the people who have small g gods. Remember we talked about the very first commandment, don't have any small g gods before me, big g God. There's only one real God. But people make small g gods out of all kinds of things. We talked about that last time. So... I just, uh, I feel bad. If you ask, where is Israel today? I mean, it's kind of cool. So, you know, this is the 75th year they've been back in Israel. Their anniversary, 75th anniversary since 1948, May 14th, coming up pretty soon. And it's kind of neat that they're all reconstituted and so forth. But spiritually, where's Israel today? Are the nations of the world looking to Israel and saying, wow, I want to get to know their God? I want to know, you know, what's he about? He's really superior. He's really got wisdom. He's, you know, really knows how to do life. And he's for us. And he's, you know, not against us. And he's full of grace and love and truth and so forth. Is that what's happening today with the nation of Israel? I don't think so. And all through uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, you know, God keeps saying, hey, look, if you obey my commandments and you live like I'm telling you, you will be my treasured possession. But if you don't, If you choose to just blow me off, if you choose to turn your back on God, if you choose to just shut your ears when it comes to me talking to you and you don't want to listen to me anymore, you don't want to listen to my word and so forth, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. I I, I don't know. Barb and I have been to Israel uh, a couple times, and uh, we've been to the Holocaust Museum. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. It's like the worst experience you can imagine. When you go through that museum and you see how God's people were treated, you can't deal with it. There's a, there's a special building there, and you go in it, and uh, there's one candle in the whole building. It's all dark, and there's one candle, and it's filled with mirrors, all these little mirrors, a mirror for each child that was killed during the Holocaust. And the names of these kids is just being read over a loudspeaker as you walk through. And I say... This isn't what God intended. How did that happen? How, how did they fall so bad? And it's all through here, you know, about, man, if you'll listen to me, we're going to have a great time. But if you blow me off and you don't pay attention to me, life is going to be tough. And I think we can all see how, you know, the, the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all these things happen to those people in Israel for our sake. God wrote them down so that we could learn, you know, who he is and who his people are and how to live. Okay, sorry. 
let's get to the business here. In Exodus chapter 20 and uh, verse 12 is the fifth commandment, which says this, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. What does it mean to honor somebody? And notice this does not say, hey, if you've got really good parents, if you have really great parents and they do everything right, then honor them. No, it just says whoever your parents are, because you're my people, and I'm God, and I'm the Father, and I'm going to establish a nation that's based on families and clans and tribes, so you honor your parents, whoever they are and however bad they are. Figure out a way uh, to honor your parents. It just says honor your parent because you're my people, and uh, God's going to build a nation. So to honor, what does it mean to honor somebody? Several things, I think. Uh, first of all, I think it means to respect uh, to respect shows up in how we talk to our parents and, by extension, how we talk to all authority. Um, and, you know, how, how serious is God about all of this? Well, in Exodus 21 and verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Shall be put to death. The penalty for sin is death, you know. Jesus had to go to the cross and die. Because the penalty for sin uh, is death. And so uh, respect, I think, includes courtesy. Uh, when we make nonverbal speech, the way we look, the gestures, the reputation. Remember this guy uh, Esau, Isaac and Rebekah's uh, son? Uh, it says in Genesis 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, all right, the Hittites, one of those termites, right, that was in the people's land, and they were going to get rid of him. Okay, so he takes this Judith uh, to be his wife, and then he takes uh, Basemath, the daughter of Elon, another Hittite, and then it says this, and then they make life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, I'm not saying I favor, you know, uh, our parents deciding who we're going to marry, you know, when, when I was dating, I thought that was really a bad idea, right? My parents are going to decide who I married. Then I had kids, and then I thought, you know, it's not such a bad idea, <laughs> right? If we could pick the spouses for our kids, it would probably be helpful. Well, Esau here, he was a character in many ways, uh, but he, you know, married a couple people. He got out of his lane, you know, didn't marry another Israelite, married the enemies of Israel, and uh, it rebounded on his parents, Another part of uh, honoring, it seems to me, is to be grateful, uh, being genuinely thankful. I think we owe our parents, right, uh, all those years that we uh, couldn't take care of ourselves and they took care of us and they brought us into the world. And most parents make great sacrifices for their children, even though their children don't know it at the time especially. And uh, I think, you know, it's important that we're thankful for uh, what they did. Gratitude, it seems to me, is the opposite of feeling entitled. Uh, Ephesians 3, I don't know if I understand the whole thing, but I think that God has a say in who we end up with as parents, uh, uh, based on Ephesians chapter 3 and God naming families and so forth. Uh, but to be named in the Bible is to be defined, and so um, uh, I believe God has a say in who our parents uh, might be. And it's quite of a mystery, isn't it? Don't we all know, like, really terrible parents and they have these really great kids, you know? And then we also know some really great parents, and they have these far-out kids, right? I, I watched the Final Four a little bit, and there's stories of these kids that uh, making it, 
you know, in basketball that were raised by single parents and horrible situations. I love hearing the stories of, uh, and I love it when these kids give glory to God because somewhere along the way, God grabbed a hold of them and he gets the credit for the changes in their life. And even though they had terrible situations with parents, uh, they're thankful for whoever uh, parents there are. Uh, the New Testament, I think, also points out that this particular commandment uh, to honor your parents is the first commandment with a promise. promises you long life if you honor your parents. And uh, I think another part of honoring is obedience. Uh, obey your mother and father is repeated often uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, how many times has Jesus said, like in John 14, three times in that one chapter, I believe, Jesus says, look, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll listen to me. You know, uh, don't tell me that you love me and then, you know, blow me off and not listen to me and not recognize who I am and, and so forth. And then uh, still another part of honoring parents, it seems to me, is uh, supporting or helping them in times when uh, they're weak or they're sick or uh, when they get to be old, you know. And uh, it happens to a lot of us. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus had some comments on this and uh Jesus said to the, he's talking to the Pharisees now, right? And the Pharisees are very legalistic. They had rules for everything. And, uh, and Jesus says this to them. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Now, just that is an earful. Just stop and think how often our traditions conflict with what God is telling us in these commandments. And we have traditions and so forth, even coming up to Easter. Well, you know, my tradition is, well, what do you think God might want you to do on Easter? You know, kind of thing. I mean, um, and then, so Jesus says, you know, you had a nice way of favoring your traditions over the commandments of God. And then he goes on. He says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever uh, reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, it's dedicated to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And many things like this you do. Well, you know, that was especially convicting to me at one point in my life because, you know, my parents, uh, my dad lived down in Florida, my mom died early. But my dad lived in Florida, and he said, hey, when are you coming down, you know? And I'm like, ah, I'm doing the Lord's work up here, you know, and it's busy. I'm tied up every weekend, and, you know, I got all... You know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm just doing exactly what Jesus said don't do. And uh, to find the right balance and so forth. Anyway, honor your parents. The sixth commandment, and I'm not, you know, sharing anything new. I know you know all of this, but in uh, Exodus chapter 20, the sixth commandment, is the first of uh, five thou shalt nots. There are five in a row that just say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the next thing when it comes to uh, loving each other. Don't murder, okay? If you have a King James Bible, it probably uh, says, or it doesn't probably, it says thou shalt not kill, uh, but the right uh, uh, translation of that word is to murder, and that's what it says, thou shalt not murder, or you shall not uh, murder. Um, if you think about this, again, uh, 
It's about the sacredness of life because God created us and he created us in his own likeness. He created us to be like him. So your life is extremely valuable and so is everybody else's. So is the next person's life extremely valuable. He made us in his own likeness and uh, he made the next person in his likeness as well. But if you just think about, you know, watching the news these days, how many people are getting killed on a regular basis every day? It's some more people, and you know, with, uh, again, I, th I think as the culture moves further away from God, uh, again, these commandments get uh, buried, you know, along the way, and uh, people just uh, do what they're going to do. In uh, the Old Testament uh, book of uh, Hosea, this is about 750 years before Jesus comes. So about 750 years. This, I don't know, quite a few years after where we're at in Exodus. But by that time, this is what happened to Israel. This is God talking to Israel in Hosea's day. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Controversy, understatement. There's no faithfulness. Or steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Thou shalt not murder. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. God's people turned away from listening to God, and so they lacked knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. That's God's response. But by that time, 750 years before Jesus even shows up, uh, this is how the Israelites were living. And many of the other prophets, you know, say similar things. And uh, <clears throat> thou shalt not murder, I know, is uh, disputed when it comes to capital punishment. Um, if you were to take Exodus chapter 21 and read to 23 or 24, you'll see that uh, all through here, God does case by case. Like, it's not just a blanket statement, but uh, God starts to define, you know, uh, what murder is and how it's to be dealt with in different scenarios and different uh, cases that uh, come up. And there are... Um, all different kinds of clarifications about this commandment as you read the next few chapters. But I think you would be surprised if you do that about how many situations uh, are actually uh, uh, penalized with death and how often death was the penalty. In um, Exodus uh, chapter 21, just the next chapter, uh, listen to this, verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. You know? Uh, whoever uh, steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And then we already read this one about whoever curses his mother or father should be put to death. The penalties for sin was death. But then God established these six cities of refuge where if you were guilty of killing someone, you could run to this one of these cities of refuge and you would be protected and safe there until you could have a fair trial, until things could be investigated, until people uh, who probably were very emotional were able to settle down, and uh, you would be handed a sentence and so forth. There's a distinction when it comes to murder in some of these passages about accidental death and willful murder. There's also a provision for self-defense. 
Uh, today, uh, I think the subject of euthanasia is resurfacing, mercy killing, um, and this is a whole subject that's being debated and so forth. Uh, war, uh, when I was in seminary, it was the Vietnam War. Uh, there's probably, I think there's almost 30 times in the Bible where God instructs people to take up arms to accomplish his purposes. Uh, what about uh, thou shalt not murder and uh, war and so on? And again, uh, Jesus, I think, has a word uh, about all of this, and uh, it was read for us, but in Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everybody who's angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever uh, insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, uh, you knucklehead or you fool will be liable to hell, uh, the hell of fire. So, you know, Jesus is like preemptive here, right? He's like saying, you know, uh, before it becomes an action, it's an attitude. And the attitude behind murder is anger. And uh, when, when Jesus expands on the commandment to get deeper and get into our hearts, he says, look, if you're angry, uh, that is what's behind murder. And so on. And um, anger is something, again, an attitude that can turn into an action. And then next in Exodus chapter 20 and uh, uh, Exodus 20, 14, um, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And uh, this speaks to the sanctity or the holiness of sexuality. And uh, this, too, is uh, always in the news, right, uh, in our day, uh, in some form or another. And uh, God's purpose for sex, uh, it seems, is almost all but ignored. And uh, we can become so accustomed to living in um, the abnormality of the way people think that we hardly realize what's happening to us in terms of compromising on what God intended sexuality to be for. And it's kind of like the frog in the kettle. You remember that? Uh, you know, the frog sits in the water and the water starts to eat up and the frog doesn't notice, doesn't notice and boils to death. And uh, that can happen to us, you know, when we live in a culture that is so opposite of what God uh, intended. And so I always like to ask the question, you know, where did sex come from? I mean, whose idea was sex? Well, it was God's idea. Maybe we should listen to what his purpose is for it. Um, it was God's idea. God made it. God created us male and female, and God intended sex to be an expression of oneness in marriage and exclusively used in marriage. Hebrews 13 says, you know, let not the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Okay? Adultery technically is sex between uh, somebody that, that's married that's not you. And... Uh, you know, I think beyond that, this verse talks about sexual immorality, which that word is fornication, and it's any sexual activity not sanctioned by what God says he created sex for. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you wanted to read that, uh, would uh, explain the death penalty for various sexual offenses. There's all kinds of uh, nuances there. And again, Jesus also had something to say on this issue in Matthew chapter 5. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verse 27. He said, uh, 
you've heard that it's been said, you know, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everybody who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And, uh, you know, I mean, pretty serious thought from Jesus. It's like, yeah, your heavenly father's serious about this. And just because we live in a culture that, you know, thinks this is really weird, it's our heavenly father's, uh, not only his desire, but his wisdom to know uh, how to have a great society uh, and how to have a great marriage and so on. Eighth commandment, uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 15. Um, and this is kind of an interesting one. Um, says you shouldn't steal. You shall not steal. So uh, if you think about this, uh, we're human beings are both spiritual and material. We live in a material world that God created. We're spiritual, to be sure, but we're also material. And um, we live in a material universe, and the way we use or value material things affects our relationship. Stealing violates uh, the next person. And uh, in the Bible, you know, uh, there's punishment for breaking these laws. A little bit short of death, uh, if you steal, um, there was punishment for stealing. But it's kind of interesting. It seems to me in the Old Testament, um, punishment had to do with restoring what was stolen, plus some. So if you were a thief and you stole an animal, you were to bring back the animal, restore the animal, and bring another one, double it up. If you stole money from somebody, you were to restore that money to that person and plus interest. In our culture, it seems, uh, and today it's, it's not even this, but it used to be that uh, if we caught a thief, we would put him in jail and uh, they would get three hots and a cot, right? They would get three meals on the taxpayer's dime. They'd get a place to sleep. They'd get a roof over their head. They'd get some exercise and a gym and all the rest of it. And today we don't even put people in jail. And again, the wisdom of God to create a society where if you're going to offend somebody and steal their stuff, you have to return it. And you have to, if you've spent it, you have to work to earn it and give it back. In our culture, you know, the victim has to go and buy more insurance, right? The, the victim uh, ends up paying for the offense and the sin and so forth. Again, God's wisdom. And I think God is guarding our right to personal property. We should never, you know, ascribe small g godlike status to any stuff that we have. We're stewards. We're stewards. Everything belongs to God. You don't own anything. Everything you have came from God. Do you believe that? You're looking at me like, what? No, really, think about it. God made everything, and he gave us the ability to earn money or do a job and earn money and buy stuff and so forth. But it all belongs to him, right? We're stewards. We're to take whatever he entrusts to us and use it uh, and manage it for his glory. That's why he gave it to us. And uh, again, I, I think, um, you know, uh, this is a very contemporary issue, um, stealing, because uh, communism, socialism, uh, wants to take away ownership of stuff. You don't own anything, the state owns everything, right? So it really is a danger. There's a lot of wisdom in the way our country was put together with our original uh, founding fathers because they, I think, followed uh, a great deal of what Moses laid out as to how to have a great nation. That's just my opinion, but... Um, it seems to me that, you know, Christianity says, look, 
What's mine is yours. God's entrusted it to me. I'm going to use it for him. I'm going to, you know, what's mine is yours. Communism says what's yours is mine. What's yours is mine. You don't own anything, and you don't have any say in anything. And again, this is a huge uh, issue, it seems to me. And also, um, while I think you and I would never uh, probably steal a bank, uh, you know, rob a bank or, you know, break into somebody's house and uh, steal their stuff or something like that. Um, but uh, I wonder sometimes, uh, do you think that uh, maybe we steal from God? And uh, you probably are familiar with this in... Um, in uh, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi chapter 3, uh, Malachi's again talking to the Israelites, you know, and here's what he says. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me, God says. And the people are like, you know, what do you mean we're robbing you? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me. The whole nation of you, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and, and so forth. And then the Lord says, and put me to the test. Try it. Put me first and see if I don't bless the socks off of your life, right? We did a thing like this in a church I pastored a number of years ago. And we said to people, uh, it was, I think, Christmas time, like three months before Christmas. And I said, listen, if you've never tithed before, a tithe is 10%. The first 10% of your income, give to the Lord. And, uh, you know, I said, look, if you've never tithed before, I'll tell you what. You put 10% between now and Christmas, and if your life isn't better by Christmas, you can have it all back. And we kept track of it, kept track of it, you know. And several people took me up on it, you know, and not one of them wanted it back. And God says, look, test me. Don't rip me off. You know, I know what you're doing. And uh, so on. So again, this is part of that stealing thing. All right, chapter 20, Exodus, verse 16, lying and telling uh, the truth. Uh, again, way back in Exodus, uh, when God originally gave these, he said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Now, there's a lot of ways of lying, right? Um, and again, I think, you know, we don't need to put examples of this out in the news. It's a crazy thing now. I mean, because we have recordings of what people say, politicians and so forth, from, you know, last year, and we put it out, and we hear what they say this year, and we say, like, wait a minute, uh, this person's schizophrenic. Um, <laughs> all right, so how do we lie? Well, you ever tell a half-truth to try to give the impression, but you're not telling the whole truth. You just, you, you want to give a good impression. So you just tell a half truth. You tell the good side, not the bad side. Uh, sometimes we lie by uh, quoting people out of context. You know, we'll take a quote and you won't believe what she said, you know, and we take it completely out of context. Uh, sometimes we act out lies. Um, I, I think of Judas giving Jesus a kiss to betray him. Right? I have one friend who kisses me, a guy, and it's, I had to get used to it. He's an Italian guy. He just kisses guys. I mean, he just kissed me on the cheek. It's just like, um, sometimes I think being quiet is a lie. You know, if you're in a, a group of people and you're talking and somebody brings up a problem and you know you got the answer and the Holy Spirit's like right on your heart, pushing the button saying, tell them, tell them, tell them Jesus the answer. 
Tell them you don't, you're not going to die when you die. You're going to go to heaven, you know, and that there's a way to be right with God. And you don't have to have shame, and you don't have to walk around with guilt, and you don't have to feel bad about whatever because Jesus has paid the price. And if you be quiet, it's kind of a lie, right? It's like, wow, I knew what to say and didn't say it. And then finally, um, number 10, uh, don't covet. Uh, to covet is to have an excessive desire or to want something that belongs to somebody else, a craving, if you will. Uh, again, it's the opposite of being satisfied or content with what God has given you. And the Apostle Paul, you might remember, in Romans 7 said, you know, I'm so thankful that that's in the commandments because without the commandment, I would have never known that I was coveting. And coveting's kind of a different deal because coveting's uh, in your heart. Like if I'm coveting your car... You don't know it, right? If I steal your car, you'll probably know it. But if I covet your car, you don't know that, it, you know, that I'm thinking that way in my heart. Only God can kind of reach down into that heart level and convict us. And that's what I think Paul was talking about in uh, Romans chapter 7. Uh, coveting comes from envy, and it can lead to stealing and greed and, and so forth. And uh, uh, again, I, uh, I just want to... Uh, I want to point out this one verse in uh, Timothy uh, as we conclude today because uh, this just seems like it, it, it wraps up everything. And here's what Paul uh, wrote to Timothy. He said, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. There's great gain in godliness but not, oh, poor me, I have to fast another week and I have to do this and that, you know. No, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. How many people are content? You know, it's not American to be content. It's American to be teased with advertisements that make you discontent so that you go and buy more stuff and, you know, and all of that. But Paul's telling Timothy, listen, there's great godliness when there's contentment. There's great gain when our godliness leads to contentment. And Jesus does satisfy uh, on all levels of life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I, I'm thankful that you've revealed these commands. It, it helps us to know what's important to you. Uh, we looked at this one time and we thought about these commands maybe as vows, like in a marriage. And uh, these are just ways, uh, you know, that you've made for us to understand uh, we do have a fallen side, and these are like guardrails for us to know how to live, how to stay in the center of the street that you've put us on. And I pray, Father, that we would learn from the Israelites because they just, you know, kind of ignored what you had to say here and turned their backs, and you call them stiff-necked and stubborn. And so there, may there not be named among us somebody who's stiff-necked and stubborn, especially when it comes to uh, relating to you. Instead, Father, help us to recognize uh, that it's our job to surrender to your wisdom, to your superiority, your God, and we're made out of the dust of the earth. And so help us to appreciate, Father, the love that you've sent our way, the grace that you've given, and the sacrifice you've made in giving up your only son so that we can be with you forever and ever. Help us to show it. Help us to live attractive lives that other people around us, our neighbors and our friends and our, our relatives even, would see. Wow, 
You guys have a great marriage. You guys have a great family. You guys have a great attitude toward life. You guys deal with anxiety. You guys, you know, have uh, turned to truth that you have in common that we don't have. And may they see and be attracted to you. And may we be quick, Father, to point people to you and to say, that's our God. He's a God full of wisdom and grace and truth and love. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.